Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did you know, on average, heating your home makes up 82% of your energy bill? Installing a smart thermostat could save you a lot of money and be good for the planet. Honeywell Home have been making the home smarter and more comfortable for over a hundred years and their trusted smart thermostats help you get control wherever you are. And because they work with Google and Alexa, you can simply change the heating with your voice. Installing a smart thermostat doesn't have to be confusing or time consuming, so why not visit getconnected.honeywellhome.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Pocalimp podcast, sponsored by Honeywell Home by Residio, making the smart home simpler. Amazon has been celebrating following the news that its annual Prime Day sale, which actually lasted two days rather than one, was the company's most successful one yet. It sold over 175 million items to customers like you and me, keen to snap up a bargain or two. But what were the big hitters and does it tell us anything about the future of online retail? Later on in the podcast, I talk to Scott Harvey, editor of Global Dating Insights, about the state of online dating and how it's changing your romantic behaviours. And Features editor Britta O'Boyle tells us her top three security cameras for the home, if you want to see what's happening when you're away. So, Dan, let's talk about Prime. I mean, it was it, it was quite an incredible time, really, in terms of in terms of how much stuff Amazon shifted. Obviously, you mentioned the 175 million sort of headline figure. Um you know, they they actually sold a hundred million items to Prime members that they had existing. Um, obviously, it's 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 a it's a concentrated time that they have, and they don't have any competition during that time in terms of you know other retailers like they were having Black Friday, and they 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 really sold a lot of their own devices. They had um, new devices like the Echo Show Five, which was half price basically, and also the Fire TV Stick 4K. They they shifted a lot of those, so it was kind of a, a lot of the, a lot of the, the top hitters were maybe predictable items but they were also quite appealing deals this time and do you think that's the say i mean one of the things that they've they've said as well is that it was bigger for them than black friday now black friday has always been this you know has been turned very much by the americans and now the uk as well and, and the rest of the world very much turned into a big shopping bonanza at the end of november as people get ready for christmas presents or even just spoiling themselves and here we are in july Perhaps when people are saving up for their their, their holidays, uh, suddenly thinking, actually, no, I'm going to go and spend five hundred pounds on a TV or a thousand pounds on something else. Do you think that's that's one of the successes they've had? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they they've shifted a lot of items that you know you wouldn't normally expect them to shift at this time of year. A lot of toys, for example, you know, one million toys they sold in the US. You know, that's that's quite surprising, really. So they've sort of created this event, obviously for Prime members, but you know, it's it's completely separate from that usual September to December Christmas buying period. And I suppose by doing that, that means that they don't then have the they're not fighting other retailers for the competitive deals. You know, obviously Black Friday, as I say, is a good analogy to work toward. You know, as a as a comparison to work towards in that sense of. 
on Black Friday, you've got you can go to in the UK, you can go to you know lots of other retailers in the US. You know the WalMarts and all the other stuff are, are doing those as well. Here, that were there any other retailers doing sort of Amazon Prime Day deals not for Amazon customers? Um, there were a few. Um, Google discounted a lot of their a lot of their Google Home products. Is obviously um, huge competitor, the Echo. Um, so uh, the Home Mini was down to twenty four pounds at pretty much every retailer. Um, but it's it's uh, and, and Dell have had a had a big sale this week as well. They've had specific deals on their products. But I'm surprised that more retailers haven't got in on it. Um, Curry's PC World have had a had a black tag event recently, which is, which they tend to do every so often. Um, but you know, retailers like John Lewis, for example, I would have expected them to get on it get in on this time, but they haven't really. Um, whether that's, I guess, that they find it doesn't work for them. But it is it is a complaint we often hear around the Black Friday period that there's too much competition and retailers struggle to get their deals known about and they're obviously appealing to sites like ours to, to cover their deals. Um, and really, um, I, you know, it would be it would be surely more beneficial for them to be out there um, with good offers at this time as well. There were some really good deals this year um, and I think that's obviously helped in them. I also think there is this sense of, of the nice thing about Prime Day was that it's only two days long. So you feel like they are getting you are getting a deal. And if you have to make that decision to buy the buy it, you've got to you've got to be quick about it because otherwise it, it goes. Where it does feel sometimes with Black Friday that, you know, it is just a month long experience. And therefore the urgency, the sort of sense of, oh, if I don't buy it now, because you think, well, I maybe in three or four days' time it might even be cheaper. So the big question, Dan, is did you buy anything on Prime Day? I actually didn't this time. I, I which surprised myself. I did look. I had a look at a lot of deals, and I was really tempted because Philips had a had a great deal on one of their OLED TVs, the fifty five inch OLED that they um, put out last year. I think. Did you buy anything? I I'm totally rock and roll on this one. I bought some dishwasher tablets. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I also bought a hard drive. It was a six terabyte hard drive. Uh, previously, I think like 200 pounds down to 80 pounds. And it just made me feel incredibly satisfied that I now have six terabytes of, of space sitting on my desk, uh, especially more so for reminding me the first hard drive I ever bought uh, was in 1991, two, I think it was. Uh, it was 45 megabytes, 45 megabytes. Just yes, just imagine that now. I, I, this podcast is probably bigger than 45 megabytes when you start to download it. And that cost me £345. And amazingly, is about the same size as this six terabyte drive that's turned up. Still to come, Brit talks us through the best security cameras on the market. Well, technically, I wouldn't say these are in order because it actually depends on what system you have at home in terms of Google Home or Alexa. If neither, then it doesn't really matter. All three of these are quite good. How did you meet your partner? Recent figures suggest you're more likely to meet the love of your life online than at uni, the pub, or even through friends. I've been talking to Scott Harvey, the editor of Global Dating Insights, an industry trade website that covers the ins and outs of the multitude of dating services that are available today. I spoke to him in his busy office to find out what's happening in the field and what's in store for the future, starting off by asking just how successful online dating is in terms of getting us together with others. If you're measuring success by marriages, by children, by any of these statistics, um, it's had a huge, huge impact. So we find around 20% of heterosexual relationships now begin online. It's the most common way for a heterosexual couple to meet, along with meeting someone through a friend. Um, meeting someone through a bar has gone way down. It's almost been replaced by online dating, is what the stats tend to say from the US and the UK. 
Um, and that's even more true in homosexual relationships. Uh, a huge 75% of homosexual relationships tend to begin online. Usually, usually the explanation for that is that it's the population density is far lower, so these individuals are far more likely to turn to an online platform and meet someone yeah, from the next town across. Um, if you're gay, somewhere like Scotland, if you go somewhere like the southwest of England, uh, yeah, these apps are incredibly helpful um, in terms of meeting people, meeting your own community where you live. Where are we at now? Is, is, it feels like online dating is a thing, but can you just give us a bit of background on what the industry's doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the kind of modern industry as we see it now really kicked off around 2013 with the advent of Tinder. Um, prior to that, it was very much uh, a kind of senior divorcee uh, user base. Tinder was the first mobile first, 18 to 35 first um, app. And yeah, it was one of the early apps. And this really brought online dating to a whole new generation. Um, I'm 25, so 18 to 35, so my generation remember it arriving and it completely transforming dating over the course of yeah five to 10 years. Um, since then, because the user base and the target market has expanded so much, the um, figures have absolutely exploded. So it's now a $5 billion industry in terms of global revenue every year. Uh, the biggest company is Tinder's parent company called Match Group. They have a 17 billion market cap. They're about 40% the size of Tesla um, for comparison. They're about the same size as LG Electronics um, for a gadget audience. Um, there are, there's Momo in China who are worth 7 billion. There's um, the Meet Group and Spark Networks. They're both about 300 million market cap. So These big are big companies. Big, big companies. Um, we see hundreds of millions in dollars in acquisitions every year. Uh, there was a recent acquisition of Tantan, which is known as the Chinese Tinder. That was a $600 million acquisition. Um, so there's big money moving in this market, um, and that's kind of epitomized by Facebook entering uh, this time last year. Um, they obviously are a $500 billion company, uh, user base of $3 billion, and they're bringing Facebook dating uh, likely into their main app, and they're trying it in new markets uh, today, they announced. So there seems to be... That list you just reeled off was, and I'm sure that's not all of them, but that just that feels like a lot of companies. How are they all the same? Is there? I mean, how do you how do you choose your Match.coms from your Tinders from your OK Cupids to whatever? Like, how does that work? Sure. So one of the main ways the industry divides it up is uh, kind of mainstream versus niche. So we talk about uh, Tinder and Match.com and eHarmony as being mainstream dating sites. Anyone can join, any orientation, any uh, preference. I'm happy to date anyone, or at least they're open to the idea of dating anyone. Um, there are then several niche sites, so from religious dating sites like JDate, um, Single Muslim, Christian Connection, to sports dating sites for um, people who are into fitness or perhaps you're a rugby fan, you want to join a rugby dating site, there are all kinds of different niche apps. Uh, the other way it kind of splits is along generational lines, so some of the more desktop based dating apps like eHarmony tend to serve a over 35s, over 40s audience, and then the very mobile first ones like Tinder and Bumble tend to be more millennial oriented. And so that's the sort of state of the market now. Yep. Where, where's the future, where are we go? Is it, is it embracing technology in, in huge sways or is it kind of going to be continuing to be the same for the foreseeable future? Sure, so we're at something of a turning point at the moment. Um, Tinder, as I said, has completely taken over the world in the last five to ten years. It's a cultural phenomenon. You hear people saying, I'll swipe right all the time in um, tech chat or just in general, you know, a bar situation. 
there's because it's been such a phenomenon and because it's a 17 billion dollar company um the criticisms of tinder have now started to come in from a lot of mainstream media sites tech review sites these sort of things uh, the criticisms tend to be that one it's too gamified and a little bit addictive for that reason um, tinder uses kind of variable reward feedback mechanism um, so you get a match every fourth swipe fifth swipe it's a little bit of a gambling mechanic so it gets criticized for being engagement first rather than user first um, it gets criticized for being shallow um, and it gets criticized for being inefficient something i always come back to is that it's maybe 20 swipes to get a match and then you maybe need five matches before one of them will say hello and then you maybe need five hellos before you get to a flowing conversation you need five flowing conversations before you get to a date five dates before you get to a second date that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> yeah when you multiply that back up you are really talking 20,000 50,000 people before you're on your third date and if you multiply it back up to you know how many faces you're swiping past so there's a real criticism that it's hideously inefficient from that angle and that it gives the illusion of um, user choice and user opportunity when actually the real prospects on there are quite thin once you get into that not to use sales language but the deep funnel of dating and you're trying to get on your third or fourth date with someone um, so it's it's a, this kind of inflection point where um, everyone's accepted that it's a legitimate way to meet a partner you see, there's a generation of Tinder babies being born at the moment. Um, there's a lot of Tinder marriages coming through. At the same time, the criticisms are starting to, starting to come in. Um, so yeah, as you said, the industry is looking to innovate and solve this problem um, as best it can. One of the ways it's doing that is through AI. Um, so Tinder's parent company, Match, uh, have recently acquired Hinge. Hinge are a very, very AI-focused dating app. They will do things like learn your preferences, uh, as you browse through people, they'll learn the kind of things that you like and serve you more of those profiles. Um, there's a We Met button that they recently brought in on Hinge um, that will figure out if you actually went on a date with the person and then they can then feed that back into the you know machine learning system. Without you telling them? Uh, you tell them that you met and that you've gone on a date. I think it <clears> prompts <throat> you if you exchange a phone number, I think. Um, yeah, and because it then has the data in their back end of who's meeting up and who isn't meeting up, what kind of factors feed into that. It can feed that back around and start to serve really relevant matches, people who are most likely to meet up based on their previous algorithm. And so do you think we'll get to a point where it's purely you observed people, you know, to, to see or whatever, purely on AI in that sense of, you know, there is no serendipity moment in that sense? Sure. There's um, a kind of division where there are some apps that take a very AI-focused approach and show that to the user. So you get shown compatibility ratings on something like OkCupid. It'll say, we think you are 87% compatible based on your profile characteristics and your recent behavior on the app. Um, Hinge is mostly users browse freely, but the order in which profiles are shown to you is AI-driven. Um, so they use AI, but not in a very, not in a way that's obvious to the consumer as you look at it. It just behind the scenes is working to um, yeah, either up your engagement, show you more relevant matches, however you want to phrase it. And then there are some that are pure, just there's no AI in how you browse. You just have a range of profiles and you browse and set your own filters, maybe. Or something now, whenever we always talk about augmented reality and whenever I go to demos and things, there's always this idea of you'll one day be able to put a pair of glasses on, walk into a bar and it'd be like, she's single, he's free, you know, yep. whatever. Do you, do you foresee dating sites to embrace that? Will that ever happen? 
There is um, a little bit of talk about it. It's one of those things that still sounds a little bit futuristic, uh, but we wrote a story this week, for example, that eHarmony have just reviewed, uh, sorry, renewed their patent for uh, smart watch dating. Uh, so your smartwatch will buzz and ping you if someone you know on the train carriage with you is also single. You can glance at your smartwatch, see her face or his face, um, and swipe on your smartwatch, and they'll get a buzz. Um, so I think it's still a little way off, but yeah, the, you know, the intellectual property is there um, on eHarmony's side for that. What I think we're closest to at the moment is a more video streaming-oriented dating experience. The technology is already there for that. Um, the Meet Group, who I mentioned earlier, earlier, they're one of the companies with a 300 million, roughly, market cap. They have a kind of Tinder side to their app, and then they also have a video streaming, almost YouTube-esque side to their app. And their idea is that they want to create a virtual bar environment where if you go into a bar as a customer, you um, might have a one-to-one -one chat with someone or you might be in a group chat with five or six friends or you might be uh, watching the live entertainment in the corner of the bar, watching the music. So the Meet Group truck tries to recreate all of this virtually. Um, so there's a kind of virtual live streaming space where people are playing instruments and singing and hosting live quiz shows and you can go and watch that in one side of the app. And then there's a chat room where you can go and yeah have a kind of forum discussion with 25 other people. And then if you're getting on well with one of those people in the forum, then you can take them to one side and have a one-to-one -one conversation with them more in a kind of Tinder type way. That sounds incredibly complicated. It is. It's, <laughs> it's imported over from uh, a lot of the Asian social media sites. Um, so there's a social media site called Momo in Asia that I mentioned. They have a $7 billion market cap. And they have yeah these different kind of social modes all in the same app. So you can use it as a Tinder or you can use it just as a Facebook or you can use it as a YouTube. It's all in the same place. It's all the same community, uh, just interacting in different ways with one another. Now, there's lots of talk as well about DNA testing just in general with sort of 23andMe and, and other sort of you know ancestry sites and things like that saying where you've come from and stuff. Do you ever think that that will play into dating as well in that sense of, oh, we're, we're really compatible according to our DNA results, we're going to make great children. You know, do you think people, the appetite is, is there for that as well? It's a difficult one to say. Um, a lot of the uh, kind of senior executives at the biggest apps you would have heard of, again, eHarmony, Tinder, Bumble, they aren't that persuaded by the DNA, da DNA dating case. Um, that might be because the science hasn't been communicated particularly effectively. So the people who are running DNA dating sites tend to be very, very educated on the topic and have a good spiel about compatibility science and that DNA is one of the main predictors of whether people will end up um, yeah, together being compatible. Um, you know, there's a big pheromone science as well. There's a dating app called Pheromore that plays on that. Um, there's just a bit of ickiness at the moment and you know, arguably culture shock um, about either taking a swab out of your mouth and sending that away to be analysed or um, yeah, there's some apps that will send you, you know, someone's sweaty t-shirt and you can see if you like their pheromones or not. Uh, these things haven't caught on yet again, I think because of that ickiness factor and there's not a general consumer sense that they're a superior way to meet someone. Um, and I don't know what the science says on it exactly whether yeah, there is hard evidence that it's better. There seems to be something to it, um, but it would be a while until it catches on. And I suppose the final question I have is, is with all this data that's floating around and who you like and who you don't like and who you've been successful with and not successful, privacy must be a massive concern within the industry. Is that something that 
with the Me Too industry, you know, Me Too movement and all these different things, are, are you noticing that within dating sites that privacy is now a lot more relevant and important mm -hmm. than it was, say, 10 years ago? Yeah, so something um, that happened very, very recently, which is a great example of this, is um, Kunlun Tech, who are a big Beijing-based conglomerate, have been forced to sell Grindr after they acquired them two years ago. Uh, because the US military is worried that they have the data of which military personnel are gay and then th have the leverage therefore to bribe them or you know manipulate them in other ways because of that they also have HIV data um, and a lot of really sensitive personal information that is just too dangerous to be vulnerable either to the Chinese government or to a leak um, so as kind of an extension of the Huawei case, yeah, Kunlun Tech has been forced by the US government to sell Grindr and that will be up on the market very soon and they'll be acquired by someone back in the US. Um, there are various other privacy concerns that we see. Um, one of them, there was a Chinese data leak recently that had women um, listing their breed ready status which was a really horrible sounding um, bad translation of whether or not they were willing to have children in the near future. Um, and that came out, yeah, again, with names, addresses, personal information. And it's worrying because these, the kind of data that dating sites have to have to operate effectively tends to be even more personal than the data on social media, on something like Snapchat, on something like LinkedIn. It's really yeah, your orientation, your preferences and... Um, yeah, it's causing a lot of problems when these things get leaked. Security cameras are the in thing in the smart home space at the moment, with a number of companies keen to help you keep tabs on your home when you're away. Gone are the days of complex and complicated installs, and in are out-of-the-box solutions that connect to the Wi-Fi in a matter of minutes. But with so many to choose from, and some with monthly subscriptions, which are the best ones to buy? Britta is here with us to tell us more about her top three picks if you're looking for a security camera system for your home or your office. So, Britta, if you could walk us through it, what is your pick for number three? Well, technically, I wouldn't say these are in order because it actually depends on what system you have at home in terms of Google Home or Alexa. If neither, then it doesn't really matter. All three of these are quite good. So there's Ring, which you might know better for their doorbells. They are owned by Amazon and therefore it works really well with Alexa devices. So if you've got an Echo Show, for example, or an Echo Dot, then either of these will be great. So they do two different ones, Spotlight or um, Stick Up Cam. Both have the sort of standard options whereby you have full HD video, night vision, motion detection, two-way talk, um, and that's actually all without the any subscription. But if you want video recording, so video history, if you want to be able to see what you've what happened in your home, um, then you'll need the Ring Protect subscription, which is about £2.50 a month. The Spotlight has a few more functions. It's got a, a light and it's outdoor as well, whereas the stick-up cam can be indoor or outdoor and it's battery or wired. So you have a, some options there. Okay. So that's if you've got Alexa, that's probably the best one to go for? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And what if you've got Google Assistant, if you're a big Google Assistant fan? If you're a big Google fan, then uh, Nest would be the best one. Um, unsurprisingly, given that Google owns Nest, uh, they work seamlessly together they're brilliant together um i've got google home and you can sort of ask it to show you your living room for example if you've got a 
Nest Cam IQ in your living room or a Nest Cam indoor and it will it will straight away show up no you don't even have to wait really because you have to have the Nest Aware subscription to get the best features uh, Nest Cam IQ has person detection and familiar face detection so it will tell you if your mum's in the living room or your partner's in the living room and so forth but you do need to pay for that which is four pounds a month per camera that also has two-way talk um, night vision a great app experience and really nice and easy to use as well which is nice it's also really good if you've got nest thermostat or any other nest devices they also do a video doorbell cool so that's if you've got alexa and you've got google is there an option do you have to have those do you can you can you get a decent security camera system without being reliant upon the others you don't need either Alexa or uh, home devices for either of those, but they are a nice addition. It's a nice, It works quite well together. Um, there's also Arlo, which actually works with both. Probably one of the best systems out there because it's a security-based system. So they're all about cameras with additional products coming into the system as opposed to being about other products and then having a camera as well. Arlo is more of a modular system. They also have lots of different options. So there's the Arlo Ultra, which is 4K recording. It's most expensive, but it offers great video quality, obviously. There's also sort of Arlo Go, which has an LTE connection. So that's great for if you have a garden and you're not, it's not that close to your Wi-Fi router, or if you've got a gate, for example. But they've got devices in between two, such as the Arlo Pro 2, which is probably the one we'd recommend because you get a few more features, better video quality. Some of the lower options have 720p, whereas the Arlo Pro range has full HD, which so you'd have a clearer view. And you also get seven days of video history without a subscription. So that's great. Um, you do pay a little bit extra. if You, you do pay the subscription if you want sort of zones, um, which is something that Nest offers as well. But you don't necessarily need it if you just want to see your video recordings and you don't want the extra features. And you can you basically pay for the camera and then and the hub, and that's that. If you were to pick one to go with, which would be your top choice? Oh, that's tricky. I mean, I've got Nest and I absolutely love it, but Arlo is probably more flexible in terms of placement because there's battery operated devices which Nest doesn't have. And it's probably slightly cheaper in the long run when it comes to if you mount up the cost of the monthly subscriptions and stuff. So I'd say Arlo is the most flexible out there um, in terms of features for the price. Well, that's it for this week's show. New episodes of the Pocket podcast will arrive every Friday with more news, interviews and buying guides for you to enjoy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please let your friends and colleagues know. And please rate us on the podcast platform you're listening on. It really will help others know you like it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.